Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, if you would please turn to the book of James, chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be on page uh, 1012 if you're using the Pew Bibles uh, underneath the benches there. James, chapter 4. We are continuing on in our series in James. We're talking about how faith works. Faith works. We're focusing in this morning on an act of faith. An act of faith. Have you ever, have you ever asked yourself, uh, how do I gauge my faith? How do I tell if my faith is, is active? Maybe if you had someone come up to you and ask you the question, hey man, how are you doing in your faith? How do you determine how to answer them? You can say, well, man, here's my church attendance. Here's how I'm reading my Bible. How, how do you determine that? So what, what we want to do today is we want to look at one of the things that an act of faith does. An act of faith is one that recognizes sin in our lives and lives a life of repentance. An act of faith is one that recognizes sin in our lives and lives a life of repentance. The problem that we oftentimes have in our faith is that we have a difficulty of seeing our own sin. I've heard people use the example of, like, well, it's a blind spot. Well, the reason a blind spot is a blind spot is because it's a blind spot. You can't see it. And so oftentimes, as we are living our lives, if we are not introspective, if we are not looking deeply at our life and our relationship with God and Christ, then we live our life without seeing our own sin, and we start to think, that we are doing pretty, pretty well. And the truth of the matter is, oftentimes, the closer we get to God, the more we will see our sin. I heard a joke one time years ago. Um, and if you like, I'll, I'll put it in my notes for the next service. I just thought of it, just remembered it. So this is dangerous. Um, remember the joke I heard one time about this priest whose job it was to to take confession at, 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 what do you call it, a convent where all the nuns are. And, uh, and someone went to him one time and said, well, well, how is it, you know, taking confession at this convent? He says, well, it's like being stoned to death with marshmallows. <laughs> and I think the idea is, is these ladies, though they might not have the same sins that we have, still had sin in their life. And it was evident to them. So what we want to do today is we want to look at James chapter 4. And James chapter 4 gives us two different things that I think will help us determine and see our own sin. It gives us the test of relationships and it gives us the gift of repentance. The test of relationships and the gift of repentance. I, I know last week when we think about not being able to see our own sin, whenever you think about what Dave preached on last week, Dave contrasted a wisdom that is from above, this godly wisdom, versus and compared to this earthly wisdom. And the way that James describes this earthly wisdom is he says it's this. He says it is an earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. And it's easy for us as Christians, to look at that and look at that description of that earthly type of wisdom and say, well, that's not talking about me because I'm a spiritual person. 
I go to church. I pray. That, that's not talking about me. He just described that as demonic. And I might not be the best Christian, but certainly I'm not demonic. And so we go about our lives thinking, well, this can't be about me. And we separate ourselves from what Scripture is saying. But that wisdom he also talked about is described as jealous and full of selfish ambition. And when we do look at those, we think, well, that, that could be about me. I, I am somewhat self-seeking. I, I am, and I, I, I have this jealousy, this envy, this competitive envy that leads me to compete against other people. So what we want to do is we want to look at this test that James gives us, and we want to look at how he tells us how we ought to repent from our sin. So let's go ahead and read the book of James, chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 10. He writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. Right now, I just ask for the assistance of your spirit as I try to communicate it. Father, help me to speak clearly. Help me to speak truth. And Father, as we read your word, may your spirit both convict us of our sin, but also, Lord, may we have the hope of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see in James chapter 4 is this test of relationships. I think a test is required because it is so absolutely hard to see our own sin. Sin, by its nature, is is self-obsessed. Sin by its nature is is self-seeking. It leads us to pursue our own passions. It leads us to pursue our own desires. But one of the the ways to test our sinfulness is to look at the relationships that we have with other people. 
Have you ever wondered why relationships can be so difficult? I mean, some relationships seem to be easy and natural and life-giving, but some relationships, whether that be with a coworker or a spouse or, or a child or an acquaintance, a neighbor, that person who cut you off on Tremere or tried to turn into wait, you know, Lowe's Boulevard, and you're just, I want to go straight, don't turn. But these relationships <coughs> tend to, to be full of, of conflict. The reason is, is because we have sin in our lives, and we see this. James says, what causes quarrels, or what causes wars, and what causes fights among you? Is it not the passions which war against you? So what James is saying is if you have a difficult in your life or a a relationship in your life that is difficult, the cause for that difficulty is the passions that exist in your own life. It's not that we can't say, well, it's the other person. It's what they said. It's their behavior. That's not what James says. James says that if you have a difficult relationship, it is because the passions that are at war within you. I'll never forget a sermon I heard by Paul David Tripp back in 2012. Um, I got it on a podcast. Someone recommended it to me. I listened to it. And it was just one of those sermons that, that tend to stick with you. And whenever he was talking about how uh, grace redeems relationships, he described people in this way. He said, we view people in our lives either as obstacles to get what we want or as vehicles to get what we want. So if we have this passion in our heart that we are longing for, we, we want it, and someone is keeping us from that passion, we, we get angry. We, we get mad. We can't believe that person would behave the way that they're behaving, that they would say the things that they're saying. And so what do we do? Verses 11 through 12, we we speak evil of them. On the flip side, if we know someone and they actually give us that which our heart desires, man, we love them. They're the best person in the world. That might be why the friendship is so natural and easy is because they help me get the passion and, and the desire that I have. I, th- I think I can illustrate it uh, in my own life. I, I love my children. I got three of them. You hear them every service. Uh, they're great. When I wake up in the morning and I actually exercise, which has been two weeks, I, I wake up at like 4.55 o'clock and I get up at that time to do it because I want to be home when my kids wake up. And when they wake up, it's my joy to make them breakfast and to clean that breakfast up. When I go off to work, I love what I do. I've got the best job in the world. But one of the reasons I go to work every day is because I want to put food on their table, clothes on their back. When I get home from work, I say hi to everybody, and I whisk my kids away from my wife so she can make dinner and I can spend time with them. We sit down. We eat. I'm spending time with them. After we eat, we clean up. 
and we do our nighttime routine, routine, like we sing and we pray and we put them to bed. I love my kids. But when I close that door, their bedroom door behind me, I want to be done. I, I want to be finished. But it never fails that before I close that door, it's, Dad, 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 wait, wait, wait. You forgot our waters. All right, I'll, I'll go get your waters. I can't believe I forgot the waters. And I get the waters. Dad, 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 wait, wait. One of them said, close the door all the way. And the other said, don't, don't close the door all the way. All right. Dad, Dad, wait, wait, wait. Can, can you cover me up one last time? All right. get to the couch, the door almost closed, but not quite, pull out my phone to flip through Facebook, and I hear a door creak and little feet walking up. Oh, why? What's going on? What is it now? I've got to go to the potty. All right, let's go. 20 minutes later, we're going back to their bedroom. What is it now? I tend to be a fairly patient person until it hits 7 o'clock at night. Why is that? It's because I'm viewing my children as obstacles to get what I want. What do I want? Man, I want to sit down on the couch. I want to watch Netflix with my wife. I want to read a fiction book that I can just get lost in the story. I want to do a project in the garage. I, I, I want to do something, but I, I want it for me. I, I want my time. James says that the reason I lose my temper, the reason that, that I might raise my voice, is not because of what they are doing, but it's because of the sin that's indwelling in me. Just as I might get upset at 7 o'clock because they're an obstacle to get what I want. At the same time, the reason that I love them during the day is because they're an avenue to get what I want. I love finding my identity in them. Sin, through relationships, have exposed my desires, and my passions. And when we have these desires and passions, the word it literally uses is that we go to war against one another. Have you ever been in a conflict and you said, how did that escalate so quickly? It's because our conflicting passions went to war with one another. One of the things that we have to ask ourselves when we read James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, is what desire do I have in my life that leads me to conflict? Because in all my conflicts, I have to realize that there is one common denominator. And that one common denominator is me. What desires do I have that lead me into conflict? We have the test of our relationships with others. But then in 2B, he also says we have this test of relationships with our relationship with God. In the second half of chapter 2, 
He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. One of the ways that we can test the sinfulness in our own life to, to reveal it is say, what is it that I refuse to go God, to God to in prayer? Because there might be something that we talk about all the time. There's something that we work towards all the time. But one of the things that we don't do is we don't go to God in prayer about it. And there's two reasons why we might go to God in prayer. And that be one of them being that we might know that our prayer is inappropriate. We know that if God were to hear our prayer, he'd be like, that, that's not for me. That's not for my glory. That's, that's for your own sin. And God and his love won't answer that prayer. Either our prayers will be inappropriate, knowing that God is already against it, or our prayers will be ineffective, knowing that we will spend our, what we get on our own passions, according to verse 3. You might say, well, Stephen, is it, is it wrong to, to have passions? Like, can't we have passions in our life that, that build us up, that we enjoy, that we can get lost in? And, and this, is, this is what I'd say, that, that word passions here in James is, is, comes from this Greek word hedony, which is basically the word that we get for hedonist or hedonism. One that seeks after his own pleasure. One that seeks after his, his own passion. And I would say this, it's fine to have interests, but when that interests turns into a passion where you seek identity and pleasure above your affections for God, it becomes sinful. And we see this when we read verse 4 of what God says about us when we make our passions ultimate. In verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Scripture calls us, whenever we make our passions ultimate, when we seek pleasure in them apart from God, he calls us an adulterous people. For whenever we are in Christ, we are in a covenant relationship with our God. God is our husband and we are his bride. And he says, whenever we go to the world to seek passion and to find our identity, he is saying essentially that we, we are cheating on God. We're having an affair. When God is our husband, we are, we are seeking our pleasure elsewhere. And what does he say? He says, when we do this, we make ourselves out to be an enemy of God. Look at verse 5, and I think this is, this, is, this is beautiful. It says, Or do you suppose that it is for no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? So here's the picture we get. God and Christ redeemed us. He saved us from our sin. He adopted us into his family. He calls us his bride. And within this covenant relationship, we have this wandering eye where we keep seeing passions out in the world that are attractive and that are beautiful, and our heart 
turns from our Savior, our God, our husband, who redeemed us to the things of this world. And what does Scripture say? It says that our God is jealous. Didn't he just say in chapter 3 that jealousy is bad? There is an envy and there is a jealousy that is bad. And there is a zealousness, a jealousy that is beautiful. It is good and right for a husband to be jealous for his wife and a wife to be jealous for her husband. If next February I think I'm going to surprise my wife, I don't do much. I don't do flowers. I don't do dates very well. But I'm going to surprise my wife. My kids are always making cards. Like I, I got them like scattered throughout my Bible, things they make. I, I'm going to make my wife a card. And I sit down at the kitchen table. I get out some of their construction paper. I get their red marker. I draw a heart on the front. And it says, I love you on the outside. And then on the inside, she opens it up. And it says, honey, Of all the women I love, I love you the most. I'd be eating that card, and and rightly so. Why? Because because when you're in a covenant relationship, you don't don't divide yourself. You're not double-minded. Your spouse gets your love, and it's not meant for anyone else. And God is saying, you have my love, and your love is mine. It's not met for any other idol out there. I am jealous, God says, for your love. I will not share it. And so it puts us in this, this, this quandary. When we are pursuing the world, God looks at us and says, don't become my enemy because I am jealous for you. And what does it say in verse 6? In verse 6, he gives us this, this gift of repentance. He says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. In verse 6, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. We might be pursuing these other idols, but when we see them, Scripture says God, God is jealous for it, but he gives us grace to come back to him no matter how often we break that covenant he is saying i am here for you you have my grace leave your mistress and come home there is more grace and so to make sure our marriage relationship works with our father in heaven he gives us this gift of repentance And I think we need to understand what repentance is. I think so often we are so loose with our words. We are so loose with how we use words. Words can actually eventually lose their meaning. And when words lose their meaning, they, they, they lose their power. They lose their emphasis. When we say repentance, we mean more than apology. If someone says we need to repent of our sins, it's not, that doesn't mean say, I'm sorry. Because if you're like me, I can use I'm sorry in so many different ways. I, I can say, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. You love that one, right? Or I'm, I'm sorry this whole thing went down the way that it did. 
There's so many ways that we can say I'm sorry without actually taking responsibility. True repentance is more than a mere apology. In fact, true repentance is even more than a, than a true confession. Because we can take one step further than an apology and say, all right, uh, I'm sorry, but we can take one step further and say, I, I am the man. I, I did it. I committed the sin against you. But that's not fully repentance. It's part of it, but it's not fully it. A true repentance is more than an apology, and it's more than a confession. And James tells us what a true repentance is as we look in verses 6 through 10. He says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I see five different parts here of, of a true repentance. Part one is that if we are to truly repent, we have to be humble before the Lord and submit to him. This is admission of sin. This is a confession of sin. But this is also a submission to the word of God. It is saying, I am putting myself under your discipline to correct me, and I am saying, whatever you say, I will do. It is not true repentance if you say, I'm sorry I did it, but you keep living your life the same way without turning away from your sin. We have to be humble and we have to submit. Secondly, we resist the devil and we draw near to God. This means that repentance is a persistent effort in the direction away from our sin and towards our God and our Savior. Thirdly, he says that we are to cleanse our hands and purify ourselves. Repentance has a goal, and the goal of repentance is to look like Christ. It's what we are striving for. And fourthly, I think this is something that we struggle with. He says that we are to be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We have to be broken over the sin in our lives. When's the last time that you were so struck by your sin and the wickedness of your sin and the evil of your sin that it made you choke up, that it made you even shed a tear, that you mourned over the way that you lived your life and betrayed your God. We see an example of true repentance in the person of David. 2 Samuel chapter 11, when David was on the rooftop of his palace looking across the city and saw Bathsheba bathing, what we see is is a working out of James chapter 4. He had a passion and a desire within him. So he acted on it, took advantage of Bathsheba, and then also warred against her husband, and killed him. What was his sin? His sin was that he coveted her. He did not want to lose his reputation. He did not want to lose his position. 
And so he warred against Bathsheba and her husband. Second Samuel chapter 12, David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. Nathan comes in and he said, you've sinned against God. And, and David is struck by his sin and the anger he has towards his sin. And he said, I am the man. I did it. I have sinned against the Lord. And then what we see is David's psalm of repentance. Psalm chapter 51 is a psalm that David wrote after Nathan the prophet went to him and convicted him of his sin. When he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And he continues on and on, being broken over his sin, humbling himself before the Lord, cleansing and purifying himself. I think one of the things that we need to do is that we need to look inward at our own relationships, at our own hearts, to see the sin that so easily evades us. And we need to come to God in repentance. One of the things that I challenge you to do, sometime when you're alone, I know being alone can be difficult sometimes, uh, but sometime when you're alone, open up to Psalm 51. And anytime it mentions sin, iniquity, transgression, replace that with your own sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my impatience. Wash me thoroughly from the selfishness that I have. Cleanse me from building myself up and tearing others down. For I know my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. I have sinned against you and you only. We need, if we are to have an active faith, to be moving ever forward in repentance. And here's the thing. Our our repentance is never going to be perfect. Martin Luther said that the life of the Christian is one marked by continual repentance. Your Christian life is ever going to be one of of two steps forward and one step back until the day that you die or until Christ returns. You're going to fight against sin and slip back into it. You're going to fight against sin and then come back and repent of it. You're going to be going back and forth until the day that you die. It is a lifelong battle. But it's imperative that we remember this, that we are saved by the work of Christ. His death, his resurrection, his atoning sacrifice has brought us into the family of God. That is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And even when we slip back into our sin, God is jealous for us and gives us the grace to come back to him. 
That is the gospel. That is, that is grace. Know that if you are in Christ, your sin, no matter how often it returns, cannot defeat you. Because Scripture tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But our life needs to be a continual striving of repenting of our sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for the grace you have given us that we might repent, that we might draw near to you and be known by you. Help us, O oh Lord, to continually fight against our sin, against these passions that wage war in us, that cause us to battle our brother and sisters, that cause us to have either inappropriate or ineffective prayers, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.